Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced for RMIT University in Melbourne, Australia. I'm Gary Barker. And I'm Leon Gittler. And this is episode 27 in our series for 2016. And today's date is Friday the 5th of August. And uh, Liam, we're talking to Ashley Thompson, a uh, business coach. That's right. Ashley Thompson's going to be talking to us all about what businesses are looking for and what they need. And after that, we're going to have a chat with economist Saul Esler. And he's going to be talking us all about the RBA rate cut and whether we can expect more. Yeah, we're getting close to the bottom of the barrel, though, aren't we? Absolutely. Anyway, uh, let's talk to Ashley Thompson. Ashley, tell us about uh, the big issues now facing business. What? How does business now succeed? What do they have to do? It's interesting. Uh, one of the things we're finding is uh, more and more we're having to take our clients into a particular niche. And it's becoming more important these days uh, with having a, a business in a market where there's very big barriers to entry, where you can get into that market and it's the market with the biggest moat that others can't come and compete against you. Um, the internet has opened up markets all over the place, which is great. It gives people great opportunities, but it means that there's a much more competition. Therefore, it's much more important to find that particular niche. So you have to find somewhere where there's no one else, where there's no other competition. Is that right? Yeah, that's exactly right. Yep. Um, we've got a, uh, a business owner who's got 18 consultants and he was being beaten by a two-person operation being run out of a house simply because these guys had a better looking website. They actually looked like they were more competent and more um, experienced than him. So it's, it's important to find that niche. So how important, I mean, everyone is now getting onto a website. It's really critical for businesses. How important is it compared to the old way of doing business? I mean, you know, these days we're seeing most businesses have websites. We're seeing businesses with their social media strategies. And, and I think, you know, a lot of businesses are doing that well. Or the businesses that we see are doing that reasonably well. I think we've almost in some ways gone too far. Look, I think that what we need to, what some businesses need to look at is they need to go back to some of the basics, which is, you know, getting out there, pressing the flesh, building relationships with people, talking to business owners. I'm saying, how many coffees are you having with your customers each week? Because if you're not drinking enough coffee with those guys, and if you're relying on social media tools and internet websites, um, maybe you don't have as strong a relationship as you should. How does a business then go out and build those relationships besides having coffee? Besides, what else, what else should they be doing? Yeah, we, we talk about client partner meetings. So it's not just a coffee meeting. It's, it's a particular meeting where you review the relationship between the two entities. Obviously, on a day-to-day basis, there's operational issues that get bought up. Um, you know, this order didn't come in or you guys did a great job of getting that job out on time. But, but what I like to look at and like to see with some of our clients is that we actually have, maybe it's a quarterly meeting where we sit down and we talk about so how are we going in general how is how is our business relationship working we call it client partner meetings because it's about seeing that client as a partner and that client seeing you as a partner of their business you in a partnership you can't work without each other you need to work symbiotically to make it all work and, and fit together and and let me tell you the result of that when that works well is the relationship gets stronger more work transacts between the two parties and it becomes a better outcome for both parties how does one go about organizing regular i mean if you have many, many clients, you wouldn't have many, many client partner meetings, wouldn't you? Yeah, yeah, good thought, good thought. I think it comes down to the old 80-20 rule, you know, where's where's 80 between it? Where's 80% of your business coming from? It's probably coming from 20% of your clients. Start with those guys and then work down through the client base from there. So really, really focus on the ones that are the most valuable? 
the ones that are most valuable, not just in terms of revenue, but also in terms of profitability and also understanding the ease of working with that particular client. So just because it's a big client, it might be a very low margin client. So don't think that they're your best client because there's others there in the mix that might have a lot more potential, might be a lot more profitable, or it might be a lot easier to work with. What about clients that you want to develop further down the track that aren't that high up on the food chain? Great point. So I think that comes to that potential as to what's the potential of the client. I can tell you about a client we've got in Sydney. They work with a lot of facilities managers in the real estate industry. And through these client partner meetings and careful cultivation of those relationships, we ended up picking up 88 new contracts or buildings over a 17-month period. Now, that client, I know this is not necessarily the best thing, but that, that client now represents 70% of their business. And that was simply by working on that client. Exactly. Client partner meetings, building that long-term relationship, always asking the question, you know, how can we better work in with you? And what happens if the client is telling you stuff that you don't necessarily want to hear? <laughs> well, well, that, that comes down to the ego of the business owner of being prepared to listen to that, being prepared to acknowledge what's being said. And if it's in the best interest of their business, act on it. Just cop it. Cop it. Yeah, look, if it's the honest truth from a client, you, you, either, you either grow as a result of that feedback or you, uh, you're going to decline in your business because that client's not going to put up with telling you the same thing or giving you the same feedback three times without any action from you. So as soon as a client raises something, you really have to act on that? You have to assess it and make sure it is realistic. You also need to judge whether that client is one of the A-grade clients that you want to propagate and develop further. If those criteria are met, then yeah, cop it. One of the big issues now is um, the skill shortage and finding the right talent. How, do, how does one assess that? Everyone is struggling with that issue. It's interesting, isn't it? Because these days, a lot of people are talking about you know going out and getting new business, more sales, um, and that's great and putting a lot of time and effort in their business into getting new clients. But I think it's just as important to go and find new talent. And I think you should be spending in some businesses as much time, if not more time, on going out and looking for new talent, even in advance of when you actually need that talent. And, and this is, we're coming to especially at this point in time in the in the economic cycle you know things are going well aside what you might read on the news I, I see that the the business conditions are very good when business conditions are good what we tend to see is the good the the a grade um, employees team members tend to stick in their jobs so as employers we need to be even more focused on finding those people that are willing to move that fit in that top bracket of performance. And what do we do to bring them over? It, all, it comes down to what you're offering in terms of the challenge of the role. Um, are you offering a role that is going to challenge that kind of person? Because these people aren't necessarily motivated by money. I mean, they, they appreciate the fact that money's there and that they might be compensated at a higher level than maybe uh, their counterparts that aren't aren't as good. It comes down to the essence of the role and making sure that role is enjoyable. It comes down to the, the company, the culture of the company, the team members, and it comes down to the purpose of that company and whether their values align with the values and the, the vision of that particular company. So that has to go, it has to, it's a question that has to go beyond money. Definitely, 100%. Having said that, if I can interrupt you there, having said that, you know, one of the things I've experienced over time is that if you, if you find a good person, you might need to pay them 10% more than what the standard average rate is going to yeah. be. But what I've found is that you'll get 25% more out of them. And in any language, you know, you go to any account and you ask them that, I invest 10% and I get 25%, that's a good outcome, think it's worth it. 
What about uh, retaining stuff? Because in a good market, people move on, people are enticed away. How do you retain your talent? We, we've heard the, the analogy, it's, um, it's six times more expensive to get a new client versus maintain an existing client. It's exactly the same thing with, um, with good quality team members. In fact, I think, it's, I think it's even more. I think it's 66 times more expensive to, to find somebody good than it is to retain your existing guys. Oh, I see that... The good organizations that retain people have a very good understanding about what motivates people on an individual basis because everybody's different and we need to treat them all differently. And so that comes to having good leadership in the company that can treat everyone differently, that can work with everyone differently. It comes to the essence of the culture of that organization. And if if we're continuing to challenge the team members in our organization, what we're going to do is we're going to see that they remain and they stay. And this perception that we have out there that people of the Generation Y um, community are going, to, are going to leave and up and leave within 12 or 18 months, that isn't true if you're, if you're working hard to put a big career plan in front of people. So you need to actually have career plans for them? Definitely. Definitely. It's, it's crucial that you show people where they are today, where they can be tomorrow, how the company is going to help them develop as individuals and how they need to take responsibility themselves of developing themselves. So professional development becomes quite critical in the retention as a retention tool. It, it very much so. Very much so. And in the good companies, we see individual development plans for people talking about exactly that point what they need to develop and what the company will do to develop them. And so good companies will have personal development plans for their employees. Good companies will and the, and the, the, the average companies that don't do that will lose their good staff to those good companies because they'll have friends that are working there that'll hear the stories about, really, your employer does that for you, your supervisor does that for you. How can I get a job at your company? Ashley, thank you very much for your time. Thanks, Leon. Well, Ashley's uh, very fluent and he's got quite a uh, history in... Uh... Oh, yes. Yes, and a lot of businesses come to him and uh, his company, Tenfold Coaching, and it's really, really thriving. Okay, now Saul and, and the wisdom of The Economist. Saul, so it's like the RBA cut interest rates to 1.5% yesterday and... All, everyone is tipping there'll be another rate cut in November. Morgan Stanley, JP Morgan Chase, Macquarie are saying it could go down to as low as 1% by next year. What's your view? Well, I'd be surprised if those more extreme forecasts were to come to pass. Uh, financial markets as a whole are certainly pricing one more 25 basis point reduction in the Reserve Bank's official cash rate. And that could be plausible, but in my view, not only are the grounds for expecting that not especially strong, but in my view also further rate reductions in current conditions are unlikely to alter the outlook for the Australian economy all that much. I have to say that I didn't find the arguments spelt out by the governor in his usual post-meeting statement on Tuesday afternoon a compelling rationale for cutting rates another quarter of a percentage point to a new record low at this time. Yes, sure, the inflation rate is well below the 2 to 3% target to which the Reserve Bank keep, seeks to keep inflation within. But 
The most recent inflation number for the June quarter wasn't a shock in the way the March quarter one was. I doubt that it has caused the Reserve Bank substantially to lower its forecast for inflation as the March quarter inflation results clearly did and warranted the most recent reduction in interest rates prior to this one. The statement referred to the Australian economy experiencing modest growth in real GDP of 3.1% over the year to the March quarter at the last reading and modest growth in employment. But neither of that is new. It's been that way for most of this year. Uh, One thing that does appear to have been influential in the Reserve Bank's thinking is the easing in housing market conditions to which they drew attention, highlighting the impact that measures taken by APRA, the bank regulator last year, and by the banks of their own volition to scale back some of their lending to the more riskier areas of the Australian property market and the more subdued conditions that we're now seeing outside of Sydney and Melbourne with some significant increases in the supply, especially of apartments, expected to come on stream in Sydney and Melbourne in particular over the next couple of years, has obviously made the Reserve Bank less concerned than it has been in the past about the possibility that pushing interest rates down to new record lows could stimulate further unwelcome upward pressure on property prices around Australia. So perhaps with that constraint removed in the Reserve Bank's eyes, they felt there was little harm could be done by lowering interest rates further. A final consideration for them has obviously been the behaviour of the exchange rate. They noted in the statement that the fall in the Australian dollar since 2013 had been helpful to supporting the transition the Australian economy is making away from growth led by mining to growth led by a broader and more diversified and hopefully more sustainable range of economic activities. Of course, the Reserve Bank would like to see the currency even lower than it is at the moment at around 75 US cents. But they will have learned over the last few years that what they do with regard to Australian interest rates has very little impact on the value of the Australian dollar especially by comparison with the impact that whatever the US Federal Reserve does or doesn't decide to do with respect to US interest rates has on the value of the Australian dollar. So if the Reserve Bank was thinking that by cutting rates this week, they might have either pushed the Australian dollar back down again or prevented it from rising further, then I think those hopes will have been disappointed as they have been in the past. Well, indeed, the Australian dollar today was trading at around 76 cents, but I suspect a lot of that is because of the weakening of the US dollar following uh, the announcement by the Japan to inject uh, trillions of yen into the economy. Well, it's it's not clear that the Bank of Japan's actions so far this year have had the impact on the yen that they have been seeking in the past. The Bank of Japan was very successful once Kuroda-san was installed as the governor a couple of years back in driving the yen lower. And that has certainly helped Japan escape from the persistent deflation that it had been mired in for much of the preceding 20 years. Years, and it's probably made a marginal contribution to improving the performance of the Japanese economy as well. But since the Bank of Japan instituted negative interest rates in January this year, the yen has actually strengthened quite significantly. Um, a 
contributed to that has also been the unwillingness of the US Federal Reserve to raise American interest rates. But so far this year, the Bank of Japan's actions have been fairly unsuccessful in achieving the objectives which they've been seeking for some time. And that may well be why the attention has now swung back to the Japanese government of Shinzo Abe, which over the last couple of weeks has announced another round of fiscal stimulus, which may be more effective than further unconventional monetary actions will have been. Turning across the Pacific to the US, uh, at the end of last year, when the Federal Reserve did raise the US interest rate above zero, there was a widespread expectation and the Fed felt itself that there'd be further increases in US interest rates this year. Well, so far there haven't been. Every time the Fed has had an opportunity to raise rates, it's declined to do so, putting off that decision for later in the year, uh, partly in response to concerns about developments elsewhere in the world, partly in response to recurring bouts of weaker than expected data on US economic performance or inflation. We're now about to head into the formal part of the US presidential election campaign now that both major parties have formally nominated their candidates and conventionally the US Federal Reserve likes to be as invisible as possible between early September and when Americans go to cast their ballots on the 9th of November this year as it will be. One concern that the Reserve Bank may well have, though they wouldn't state it publicly, is that if Donald Trump does win the US presidential election, and that's certainly a possibility that we shouldn't rule out, then given Trump's policies on issues like international trade in particular, it could well be that foreign investors to whom the US collectively owes about eight and a half trillion US dollars or 48 and a half percent of GDP could decide to reduce their exposure to the US by pulling some of their money out. If they do that, then the US dollar could fall quite a bit. And one of the consequences of that would be, of course, that other currencies, including the Australian dollar, would rise against the US dollar, something the Reserve Bank would regard as most unwelcome at this stage of Australia's economic evolution. And they might, in those circumstances, if they were to come to pass, wish that they'd left a bit more ammunition to deal with that by cutting interest rates more aggressively than they'll be able to if they keep lowering them every quarterly meeting simply because inflation remains below their target, even though cutting interest rates probably won't do much to get Australia's inflation inflation rate back up to the target anytime soon. But uh, it's certainly the case, I think, that uh, whatever happens, interest rates in Australia are going to be at unusually low levels for a very long period. Now, uh, the issue with inflation, of course, is that you have what's driving that is low wage growth. Now, that, of course, will feed into the lack of government revenues coming in, and that will make budget repair a lot more difficult. What's your view about that? Well, yes, it does. Um, what low Wages growth has been a factor contributing to the decline in inflation, although it's also been a factor contributing to the resilience of employment and encouraging employers at the margin to substitute labour, which is relatively cheap, for capital, which might also be cheap but tends to involve bigger decisions with bigger consequences for boards and managements if those decisions turn out with the wisdom of hindsight to have been wrong. Uh, low wage 
growth has also taken over as a more important factor undermining growth in government revenues than falling commodity prices has been so far this year. And as you say, that does make the task of budget repair more complicated than it was already. It's worth noting in passing, though, that there have been some other important factors contributing to the softness in Australian inflation. They do include, in particular, very weak inflation around the world and falling prices around the world for many of the goods that Australia imports. That's partly a result of the excess capacity in industrial production in many parts of the developing as well as the advanced world and falling commodity prices, falling oil prices have played a role in the decline in headline inflation in Australia over the last 12 months. Slowing growth in rents as the supply of housing increases has been a factor that's underappreciated by some analysts and fierce competition, particularly in the grocery sector, has also contributed to low inflation. So uh, some of those things help to offset the impact on households of slow growth in wages and with wages growth running at about 2% and inflation at less than 2%, then real wages on average are at least rising, which is good news for households. What's not good news for those households who rely on interest income, of course, is that the returns to saving in the most conventional forms are getting even lower. I suppose if there's a silver lining for depositors out of the announcement by the Reserve Bank this week, it is that perhaps unusually, the major banks have chosen to respond to the cut in interest rates, not by passing it all in full to borrowers, but by giving some of it to depositors in the form of an increase in deposit rates. It won't do much to compensate for the falls in deposit rates over the last three years, but I suppose it's a small silver lining for a sector of the economy that sometimes doesn't get much attention from the media or politicians. So, Les, like, thank you very much for your time. That's a pleasure again. Thanks for having me. So how do you read that, Leon? Well, I think the market is pricing in something like a 50% possibility of a rate cut in November and a 60% possibility of one in May. So we're going down towards zero. We're, well, the uh, uh, so far, uh, Macquarie and uh, JP Morgan and Morgan Stanley have forecast that we're going to be around 1% next year. And that's got... Pretty serious implication, particularly for you know retirees and people like that. There's no money in it. Not only that, not only that, but if the economy continues to contract, and let's remember that economist Steve Keen this week forecast that Australia would be in recession next year, does not leave the RBA which with much ammunition. No, none, none at all. And yet when you talk to people, they say, well, the economy is not that bad. That's right. And it, it probably isn't that bad. So, yes. So anyway, it's going to be very, very interesting to watch. But one thing for sure, it will be years, years till we see interest rates sneak up again. Of course, the bank's, the bank's mortgage rates are still up there around five. That's right. Yeah, so they're making a buck. Oh, the banks. Yes. Okay. Another news, Leon. Well, Gary, activity in China's manufacturing sector unexpectedly shrank in July with smaller medium-sized firms leading the fall, reinforcing fears that the economy may once again be losing momentum. The official purchasing managers index eased to 49.9 in July compared with the previous month's reading of 50, and that's below the 50-point mark that separates growth from contraction on a monthly basis. So after expanding for three consecutive months from March to May, growth in China 
China's factory sector has stalled in June, and analysts say their economy has mostly steady, but the activity is now reliant on growing government spending and debt. And more and more debt is uh, just what China can't afford. That's right. So it is a real worry. Meanwhile, Japan's government has announced a 4.6 trillion yen, that's about 59 billion Aussie, in extra spending for the current fiscal year, with Prime Minister Shinzo Abe seeking to bolster the flagging economy without abandoning targets for improving fiscal health. And the spending approved by the Cabinet on Tuesday is part of what Abe flagged in a speech last week as a 28 trillion yen stimulus package, saying more investment was needed to expand the world's third largest economy and cabinet's approved spending of 6.2 trillion on infrastructure to help double the number of tourists visiting the country speed up construction of a magnetic levitation line and aid building projects overseas and the afr this morning had a headline on all of that saying abe goes for broke he certainly does he certainly does but let's just see japan has been basically in this state now for decades and uh, that's right it's going to be very difficult to see it getting out of it, particularly with their demographics. Yeah, and yet their industry remains strong, doesn't it? That's right. Now, to Australia, and a new survey has shown that a growing number of households say they won't be able to pay off their loans with anxiety over low wage growth and not getting enough hours of work. And that's despite low interest rates. And research from industry fund owned bank ME found out that two out of two thirds of households with a mortgage, 10% said they would be unable to meet their minimum loan repayments over next year. That's up from 5% in December. Uh, now, part-time employment has been growing more strongly than full-time employment the past year. And at the same time, wages growth has now hit an 18-year low. And what makes the picture really grim is that household debt is now at a record high. The ratio of household debt to disposable income is at 186.9%. And that's a worry, Gary, particularly if they're not going to be able to meet their mortgage payments. Well, that's right. And I don't know how what the bank's going to do, um, whether they're going to carry them or reduce rate. Or... That's right. Now, forecasting agency BIS Shrapnel has warned that apartment building will collapse 50% around Australia over the next four years. Sydney, it says, will be the only, buck, only market bucking the trend because it will remain undersupplied. And BIS Shrapnel's building in Australia to 2016-2031 report says national dwelling commencements will fall in the second half of this year after total dwelling starts reached an all-time high of 220,100 in 2015-16. And they say with record low interest rates driving building activity to its current highs, almost all major markets will shift into oversupply. And that means the market will collapse. The market will drop. You have the bubble will burst. That's right. Now, Sydney and Melbourne are leading house price growth across the country, rising by 61.3%, 42% respectively, since the housing boom started in 2012, according to the latest CoreLogic Hedonic Home Value Index. But there are signs the market is slowing. Four of Australia's eight capital cities recorded falls in dwelling values in July, and the rate of growth across a combined capitals aggregate index slipped back a notch. The annual rate of growth is tracking at 6.1%. That's the slowest since September 2013. The annual rate of growth in Sydney and Melbourne has fallen below 10% for the first time. And while housing prices grew 0.8% in July, prices in Sydney and Melbourne were up 1.3% and 1.1% respectively. So Melbourne and Sydney are holding up the market. Yeah, they are, although building approvals seem to be down. Well, this is this is the real worry because in two alarming signs about the state of the Australian economy this week, we saw ABS figures showing building approvals falling to a seven-month low, signalling that the construction industry has plateaued and the nation's trade deficit has widened sharply. The ABS figures show that Australia's trade balance blew out with a deficit of $3.1 billion in June. That followed a deficit of $2.2 billion in May and is worse than the market expected. Imports were up 2%. Exports were down 1%. Economists were tipping a deficit of 
$1.2 billion in June, so it's much worse than what The Economist was saying. At the same time, the ABS figures show building approvals slumped by 2.9% to 18693 after seasonal adjusted adjustments, and that followed a 5.2% drop the month before. And overall, the figures show a 2.4% slide in approvals for dwelling, excluding houses, but including townhouses and apartments. And that, Gary, is the lowest monthly reading since November last year. And that's going to have an impact on employment because uh, housing construction's holding up the employment at the moment. That's right. Now, um, for the second time in three months, the RBA has slashed interest rates, sending interest rates down to an unprecedented 1.5% uh, to lift sluggish inflation and keep downward pressure on the Australian dollar. And in a move forecast by most economists, the RBA cut the rate by 0.25 of a percentage point from 1.75% down to 1.5%. The last time the RBA cut rates was in May, and the banks have only passed on a portion of it, up to uh, 1.14 percentage points, and that's it. Yeah, one of them only put out 0.1, didn't they? That's right, that's right. So it was really, really low, and if the Prime Minister has criticised the banks and told them they have to explain why. Yeah, and they've all declined to do that publicly. Well, of course, the uh, CEOs are all busy taking home 10 million bucks a year. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, to some interesting business corporate news, the Snowy Mountains Engineering Company expects to triple its Australian workforce and compete for more urban infrastructure projects after it was acquired by Singaporean consultants Subana Jurong, which specialises in urban planning, and they acquired it for Singapore $400 million. That's about $393 million Aussie. And SMEC, which was established by the government in 1949 to build the Snowy Mountains Hydroelectric Scheme, was privatised in 1993, and it's been subsequently owned by employees. And that means the sale is going to create a raft of new millionaires. Yeah, SMEC has been very successful in its uh, engineering contracts. And the scheme was built to generate power by collecting water from melting rain and snow. It took 25 years to build, attracted thousands of migrants to Australia to work on the project. And Sabana required SMEC to strengthen its capabilities in Asia, particularly Singapore and uh, China. And SMEC, which will be a sub- subsidiary of Sabana, it will retain its management team and brand name, and it plans to use the Singaporean group's resources to bid for more urban renewal projects, like the redevelopments of neighbourhoods around Sydney Harbour. And that'll be fantastic. Will be. Tabcor has snapped up ASX-listed gaming technology group Intech for $115 million. Intech provides gaming technology solutions to over 1,200 licensed venues and a network of 70,000 gaming machines across Australia. And Tabcor expects the acquisition will add earnings before interest tax appreciation and amortisation of $20 million in the year after it's integrated in the business, which is interesting. Now, also, seven US media is predicting the Rio Olympics will attract the biggest audience in Australian television history. TV ad buyers and sales executives forecast that advertising sales will reach 120 million to 130 million which will be in complete contrast to what happened to the previous rights holder game nine which racked up a 25 million dollar loss on the london 2012 games now the seven west tragedy is interesting because it brings olympics not just to tv sets but to smartphones tablets and social media apps and seven says signed content deals with twitter and snapchat to capture audiences on as many platforms as possible and it's planning for more than a million downloads of its olympics on its seven app and will broadcast 900 hours across its linear broadcast channels and that's in addition to 300 hours streamed for free which is a sign of what's going to happen to television down the track isn't it that's right 
Yeah, but Jerry Harvey's not doing any good. He says everybody's got high-definition TV sets. And everyone's going differently now. Now, media group Fairfax will write off the value of its publishing assets by close to $1 billion in its full-year results as the company looks to a future that might not include weekday print editions of its flagship Sydney Morning Herald and the Age publications. And the write-down comes as the company moves to carve out its growing domain online real estate listings business from its less profitable newspaper publishing assets. And the impairments include a charge of $484.9 million against its Australian Metro Media Division, an impairment of $408.8 million against its Australian Community Media Arm, and a write-off of $95.3 million against its New Zealand assets. And it brings total non-cash in payments to $989 million. And Fairfax is saying that will come out to $922.7 million after tax. And more interestingly, though, Fairfax is also splitting its domain group away from its Australian Metro Media Division, and that's going to heighten speculation it will split the property classified site away altogether and float it as a separate entity in a bid to maximise its revenues and share price. Yeah. Um, it's very profitable. It's highly profitable, much more profitable than newspapers. Yeah. And so it'll be interesting to see why, where Fairfax, what uh, equity Fairfax has in that business after it's floated. would mean, of course, that they'll probably continue to print the weekend paper because uh, that fits with the online domain. For now. For now, yeah. Yeah. Now, the profit season's underway, Gary. So here are some of the results uh, during the week. Now, yesterday, Rio Tinto reported its worst profit in 12 years. Falling prices for iron ore, aluminium, copper saw the world's second biggest miner reporting first half underlying earnings of $1.56 billion, a steep drop from the $2.9 billion of underlying earnings reported for the first six months of 2015. Softer advertising market conditions will see 7 West Media earnings falling 15 to 20% in 2017 and the broadcaster's after-tax profit fell 0.9% to $207.3 million compared with $209.1 million the previous year and revenue slipped 2.8% to $1.7 2 billion and it's still spending all that money on the olympics gary yeah well they have to make a buck don't they that's right also despite falling student numbers education provider navitas has reported a 25 percent jump in net profit to 78.1 million and genworth mortgage insurance australia the asx listed arm of the u.s lenders mortgage insurance provider has reported 20.1 percent lift in profit to 135.8 million and finally kerry stokes diversified industrial energy and media company seven groups holdings has posted a 197 $7.8 million profit. And that's it for this week, Gary. Good, Leon. Excellent. And next week? Next week, we're going to have a chat with Srilish Pillay from Freedesk. Yeah, which is, um, it, they set up uh, help desks and customer support for small to medium businesses. And in the meantime, you can keep in touch with us on Twitter at TalkingBizBRZ or on Facebook. Until then, stay safe and we'll look forward to talking to you next week.